You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. We're starting a new thing, consolidating congregations, beginning a new era for Frankfurt Ave. Um, And here I'm the new pastor, so I wanted to take the time... uh, that would normally be for a message to a host and ask me anything. So I'm Johnny. Uh, I've been with Circle of Hope for like 13 years. Um, I've been a pastor in Circle of Hope for about eight. Uh, I've been married for eight years. I have two girls, Elaine and Agatha. Agatha's two, Elaine's five. Um, I'm, a, I'm an independent study away from finishing an MDiv, a Master of Divinity. So that's exciting, I think. I was a school teacher for a while before I became a pastor, too. So those are some, some, some things to maybe uh, whet your appetite or pique your interest, uh, depending on which uh, metaphor you prefer. Um, so you might ask me a personal question. You could ask a question about Circle of Hope, about um, God, Jesus, the Bible. Um, within that, there's a pretty wide range of things we could talk about. So, you know, use your own discernment to imagine what that is. We could talk about, like, basic electrical work and um, barbecue, and those are some other interests I have. But that would, you'd, if you did that, you'd be, you'd be pushing the range of the dialogue. Does that make sense? And maybe you want to think about it this way, too. You're asking a question that's edifying and that encourages the group, too. You might ask a question that you know the answer to, but you think somebody else might have. You can ask a question about something that's challenging for you, too. So... That's the idea. Does that make sense? So let's take the next uh, 20 minutes or so to do that. I'll try to keep my answers brief so we can get as many questions in as we can. Mariko. When I wake up, usually Agatha has beaten me up. She's, and sometimes, you know, literally beaten me up too. So I, go, I walk into her room and I have to, and I have like this, I, have to, I pray on the way there because I know she's going to hate to see her father first thing in the morning. She does not want me to take care of her. So she, she, um, she wrestles me and she'll say, no, I want mom. And then we, we, uh, we negotiate for like 10 minutes and then eventually she'll, uh, she'll submit and then I can actually change her and get her ready. Meanwhile, her sister has been up probably for, you know, since like 4 a.m. or something like that. It's hard to know when Elaine wakes up or if she ever sleeps. So <laughs> I'm encouraging her to get ready. And then uh, I have the morning duty with the kids. So I try to get them organized and ready for the day, drop-offs, lunches, and so on. Um, and then when I have a minute of downtime, I try to find some quiet um, to uh, do some prayer, some reflection about the day. I also have practiced uh, daily using both of our daily prayers. Um, I think um, as, a, as a leader in the community, but also they've been beneficial for me as well. So um, emptying the dishwasher and doing the French press is, would also be a consistent routine that happens. So is that, is that, is that helpful? Does that answer your question? <laughs> I, I would really like to wake up before them. And like I still aspire to that. But so far it's, it's you know, they go to bed pretty early, like I would say before seven they're in bed. So 
waking up prior to someone who sleeps at 7, I mean, they're getting a way head start in the whole evening than I am. So I usually don't get there. And they have to sleep at that time because they're totally dysfunctional. You know, after a while, you know, once you get if you're up at 8 o'clock with a 2-year-old, not a lot of it. It's hard to talk. So thanks, Mariko. Any more? Yeah, Ed. What's something that you pray or tell yourself or ask for? Or I didn't mean it to be that prescriptive, but like um, when your tank's at complete empty and you know you have to do a lot for the day, you apparently got to wake up at four in the morning or some crazy time and are like have to go and don't have a choice. Like how do you, and you just feel like you don't have anything left in you? I have to ask God to, for grace um, that I can extend myself so that I don't feel shame about not finishing everything I wanted to that day. So my main negative feeling is a shame. So some of you know the Enneagram. I know about it from Joshua. And um, I'm in the 234 heart segment. And so shame is our main negative feeling. I also grew up in central PA. Um, and shame is the main negative feeling there. Um, and I'm also uh, the son of two Egyptian immigrants. And shame is also the main feeling there. And so it's like a double weakness, if you will, you know. Um, and so I, uh, my prayer is I'm going to do my best to get through it, and I'm going to work as hard as I can. But at some point, I'm going to have to set a boundary and say I'm done working for the day, or I can't go anymore, and not suffer embarrassment or shame as, because I didn't do that. Or... Um, you know, punish myself unnecessarily by going well beyond my capacity. So, I don't know how well I do that. I probably try to get everything done that I wanted to. I usually have a list of the things that I want to do that day. Um, and maybe I'll get better at making the list so that I don't have too much. But that's my prayer usually, is, you know, Jesus does the work, you know. So, I have to really come to terms with that. Maybe even every day. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, Jeremy. Uh, can you give us, I know you're into uh, uh, social media and technology. We talked about this Can you give us a prediction of where you think social media and communicative technology will be in like 10 years? Where do you think we're, we're headed? Just in, in your own gut sense, based on the last, thinking about the last 10 years, for instance, and how, where it's coming. I think that this is this is a big question. I, 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 we should write a paper about this. I think that the uh, my feeling is that it'll be a lot harder for us to detach from technology at, at it, over the next ten years, and it'll become um, an extension of ourselves. And it, it'll be awkward for you to be a person that doesn't have their body parts beeping or notifying them of things that are happening. And so I think that fusion between the between our our uh, personal computers as phones or whatnot will become a lot more uh, integrated with us, which I think has uh, theological problems. Because I think that um, when the technology becomes a part of your body, you're, you're uh, you know, messing with how creation works and how God saves you. And so that's, uh, that's, the, that's, that's a, a fear that I have. But I think that that sort of integration seems to be more common happening more frequently. I don't know if we'll have like chips in our bodies or not. You know, even, you know, people that are interested in uh, 
speculation about the end of the world. You know, have you ever heard of these the, the extensive speculation about what will happen at the end of the world? Somehow, chips implanted in you is a part of that uh, school of thought for some reason. So maybe that'll happen. You know, maybe they've been right for 50 years or however long we've been saying it. But I think that something like that could happen. Yeah. Um, I do don't think though that we'll have we'll we'll move into a disembodied consciousness where you'll be able to be conscious outside of your body. I wrote a paper about that, if you're interested, where I, you know, 30 pages worth of uh, why we can't live without our bodies. So, I don't think we're gonna, I don't think that'll happen. I do not think that will happen. So, because I don't think your mind can exist without your body. So that, that's, a, that's a big piece of uh, philosophy there. But I'm sticking to that one. Donovan, follow up to the same question? <laughs> Um, maybe from something that we all navigate, but maybe I'm, I'm picturing you navigating this more recently with like Elaine being at kindergarten, um, when people find out that you're a pastor or that you're, you know, a Christian in uh, the present day, how do you navigate that conversation when there's a lot of, you know, association with, you know, evangelical Christianity probably is what comes to mind when people hear. So maybe you've had a conversation recently, or you can give an example of how yeah, I mean, I, I hide behind circle thrift would be the first uh, way to protect myself against that. So I say, hey, I'll know if circle thrift in the neighborhood because Elaine goes to Adair right here in Fishtown. So they all know circle thrift. And they generally, there's not, not, not a lot of hostility towards circle thrift, which is nice. <laughs> not a lot of angst against the store. So if I can be the pastor that's part of the church that owns that store, that helps, to be honest. So I'll say that usually. But I don't apologize for it or apologize for being a Christian or use the bunny quotes or uh, rabbit quotes, bunny quotes. What is, what's this? That's what? Bunny ears. Oh, yeah, they did it in the 90s, right? With the, yeah. So I don't apologize for being a Christian or for being a pastor. And if they have to have a problem with me about that, that's okay. Because I usually have a problem with Christians and with pastors, so it's not unfamiliar territory to me. But I try not to let that, because there is a little bit of anxiety about that, right? It's not, when I was a teacher, you could say you're a public school teacher, you know, working at Simon Gratz. You know, people are really excited about that for some reason. But they're not as excited about being a pastor, so I just let them hit me as they're going to, if they are. And they generally aren't, you know, the people, are, people are usually kind. And so I try not to be ashamed of uh, what I do and, and who I am in Jesus. But there definitely is that little, oh boy, and that's why I get so hot sometimes about when the gospel or the Bible or Jesus is kind of being drugged through the mud. Like, well, well we're going to have to pay for this eventually. You know, this isn't really helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and by the way, if you have like a thought or a comment about like any of the questions, I think you can just raise your hand and add to what I'm saying. It's not just a one-way thing. So are you adding or asking? Go ahead. We're already chipping dogs. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. What do you put in the dog? A chip. For what reason? To locate When they run away. <laughs> but it's not telling him it's Twitter, right? It's not like that. Oh, like a tracking device. Oh, that makes, that's pretty, uh... We have chips and humans. Yeah, there are chips and humans. There are chips and humans. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah, there's, there's, there's pieces of technology in human beings. That are controllable by outside forces. But... Do you think... That 
So when I was talking about, about Jeremy's question, it's like, is my iPhone going to be fused to my body somehow? That's the question I'm wondering about. So maybe that'll happen. There we go. So what do you think? Well, there's all this generational research that the generational generation of children that we are raising are actually going to be more detached from technology because of our generation's fears around it. And um, there's a lot of preppers and like people. Preppers? Yeah, like Gen Xers and millennials have bought into the end of the, universe, the, end of the world in um, more meaningful ways. To a fault. That is fascinating. <laughs> Eric, Holly. Go ahead, Eric. My question is sort of related to what Mariko asked, but it's specific to discipline. Um, for myself personally, I'm trying to like exercise discipline. That looks different for everybody, right? But I'm wondering what that looks like for you and like what your relationship to discipline looks like between brushing your teeth every day to spiritual discipline and what the practices are, like do you practice fasting or other forms of not as common as spiritual discipline. So I don't floss. That's the, just to tell you the truth. And sometimes I'll floss the week before the dentist appointment so that I don't have to lie to the dentist about, the, about what's happening. I'll say, yeah, I floss. <laughs> I've started flossing every day. Um, but I brush twice a day. I shower when I can. <laughs> um, and in terms of spiritual disciplines, um, I've practiced going on a quarterly personal retreat for about the time that I've been a pastor, um, usually with the seasons. Somehow, usually in the month of the love feast would be the, the tradition. Um, and on those uh, retreats, I write and am quiet and usually fast, too. So I'm not eating. That would be a common, that would be a, an early discipline that I, that I collected, that I've, I've, that I've kept. Um, I like to pray out loud if I'm able to. Um, especially if I'm feeling anxious, getting the thoughts out of my mind and into the air helps me actually see what they are and uh, approach them. I also like doing contemplation. So there's a, and there's a, the book I would recommend if you're interested in developing that um, discipline is by a Villanova professor who teaches undergrads. So it's pretty palatable, I think. The book's called Into the Silent Land. The guy's name Martin Laird, L-A-I-R-D. So that's a, uh, I actually have, I have a copy, I've bought this book several times because people end up keeping the copies that I lend out. So those are some of the disciplines that I try to practice. Study is also a big one too for me. And I really try to uh, maintain agreements and be as regimented as I can about it. And so um, the routine of my life helps me to be disciplined. And so even the daily tasks don't change, you know. What I do on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday, there is room for variation, but there's certain things that need to happen that day. And that kind of uh, 
regular routine um, really helps me and my personality style to stay connected to God and to the other things that I want to do. So, yeah. Jordan, you've been trying for a while. Yeah, so I can kind of follow up to that. But how has your understanding of prayer changed since you became a pastor? It's changed as I thought about um, how involved God is in the daily workings of the world. You know, before I used to think that um, God was the, I'm going to use a big word that I wish I could dumb down real fast. I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, I thought God was meticulously sovereign, where every little thing that happened was God's will. And so I, I wondered about what the point of praying was. And then I eventually moved to the place where I thought, no, I can actually move God's heart. God, God isn't uh, what Aquinas called him, the, uh, the uh, unmoved mover. He is more like what uh, a guy named Clark Pinnock calls him, the most moved mover. And so God um, can be moved and can move things. And so I pray to move God's heart sometimes. That's a big shift in how I even intercede for others or intercede for the world. Um, I've also moved more into contemplative prayer, silent prayer as well, and also prayers of coming to terms with things that I can't change um, and coming to peace with that. Because as much as I pray that things might change, I know that, I know that there are lots of things around me that are very difficult to change. And rather than try to change them, I pray to change myself so I can cope or adapt or flex to those situations. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, those are two different, or not contradictory, but parallel or the one you're organizing around movement, the other you're organizing around stillness. Yeah. Thanks, Jordan. Anyone else want to share how they pray? Or something you would add? Or another question? Yeah, Kent. Um, I was wondering what, as a pastor, your relationship with ambition is. Like as someone who's worked for companies and organizations, or like even if you run your own business, there are like really measurable ways to like be ambitious and measurable ways to like be lazy or coast. Um, but in like the complications of working with so many people who are people and complications of or I mean, maybe even like abstraction sometimes of God and figuring out how that all works. I wondered, as a pastor, what ambition feels like and when it is good and when it is bad. So I'm, a, I'm an ambitious person. And when I, and, and a, a number three on the Enneagram, if you, I keep mentioning the Enneagram. I know, twice seems like a lot, like I'm really into it, but, but for some reason I'm talking about it now. Uh, so, so I like success and ambition, and that's kind of how I'm driven. You know, the Eagles won today, right? But they didn't really win, as far as I was concerned, right? They, I just don't think they performed as well as they could have. And that's felt disappointing to me. And I wished them to win more decisively than they did, right? That's, and that's how, kind of how I watched the game, too. It's like, I know you won, but you should have really won. Um, and so I tend to have that self-critique even when things are going okay or how they are. So sometimes the dark edge of that is that I'm too condemning or nothing's ever good enough. Um, on the bright side though, I am motivated and um, pushed toward um, succeeding 
in, some, in, in one way or the other. If you couple that with the work in Jesus that I feel compelled to do, we move from the affirmation that I receive when things are going well to working with Jesus on world redemption and restoration, not because it feels really good when that happens, or like when someone new comes to my cell, that's really exciting, but because like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm constrained by God's love. Like I, I'm, I do this because God's love moved me and, 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 and holds me and has transformed me, and so I share that with people. My main interest is in finding people who are looking for Jesus or looking for Circle of Hope. I'm not that interested in changing everybody's mind about, or even their hearts about how they want to worship or if they want to worship. So how I channel my ambition is just by, you know, it's a search project. I'm checking in to see if you're the kind of, if, if, if you're the kind of person that would be uh, encouraged or blessed by the work that we're doing. And I keep looking for those people because I have great confidence in you and what you bring to, uh, to the table. And I think Circle of Hope is really good for a lot of people. So I keep looking for the people for whom it would be good. So that's, those are some of the ways that I um, kind of temper my ambition. Um, but it is, it's, it's, uh, it's a little embarrassing to talk about it because I, I kind of feel like a, a shadow over it because our culture is so ambitious in many ways and our leaders are ambitious and we want to succeed all the time. And there's something that's uh, not countercultural enough about my ambition that brings me some shame about it. Like, it's not that woke to be this ambitious, right? That's still something that happens in my mind and in my heart. And I have to overcome that, um, that self-condemnation and just be who I am and be who I think God made me. Um, and that takes uh, uh, um, a shift in how I think about the world, um, or even a shift in what my upbringing was like, you know, um, to not only not be ashamed of who I am, but also to not be ashamed when things don't go well, or I fail, or I don't succeed. So those are some of the ways that I work with it. You want to say something back? No, I just I thank you for answering that question so vulnerably and honestly. That is, uh, yeah, we're so different. That's great. <laughs> uh, oh, really? I really, I really like where you're coming from, but that, that's awesome. You're just a totally different thing, huh? That's okay. There's room for that. Any more? Maybe a few more. Holly. So, um, <coughs> I'm going to, like, the context for this is somewhat political, but I don't want to go political with this. Um, That's like showing me the cookies and saying, <laughs> don't eat the cookies. Yeah, I just made them. You can't eat them. <laughs> so one of the criticisms that I hear about Christians is that um, like, the Christian right speaks so loudly and publicly and forcefully about their opinions. And the flip side of that is like the Christian left, whatever that means, doesn't have a platform or a voice um, to counterbalance or to speak to the public about maybe the other side of um, the other way to live out the gospel or 
to be Jesus in this world. So my question to you is, like, what do you think about that? Why is the like Christian left so quiet um, about various hot button issues in the world that affect a lot of people and people have strong opinions and feelings about. These are these are big questions. Sorry. <laughs> it's been on my mind. What's that? No, I, I, I could talk it's like a whole series we could do on this. Um, I, I would answer that question in two ways. The first one is there there are Christians who I guess are on the left, it's hard for me to say it that way, right? But who are, um, who are interested in things like peace and justice that do speak vocally about um, political matters. I, so I think that the, if, if someone thinks the religious right is the only group talking, I don't think they're listening very well. And I think that uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I say it is because um, the black church in the United States has, has, been, very, has been very forward about their politics um, and is certainly not um, allied quite frequently with the Republican Party, for example. And so there is a movement like that. And I think there's a, a movement that Reverend Barber is kind of pushing about, let's actually talk about this. Let's have a moral conversation about um, politics where we are. I also think that Christians have been involved in a lot of progressive movements um, from um, abolition to suffrage to uh, even resistance against uh, Nazi Germany. So I think that there is a, has been a segment like that. Maybe not as vocally loud, especially from uh, if you're really listening to a fundamentalist style evangelicals. Um, yeah, there, it can be drowning out a little bit. So I do think there is a voice there, um, but I think that it's been a challenging voice because um, the loud matters for the right have kind of blocked how other people can talk about it. Because there are certain assumptions that people make about um, things like marriage or abortion that are so, um, uh, there's so much grandstanding around that, that it's, it, it, can be too, it can be a challenge to even have a dialogue. You know, matching um, your opponent, if you want to call them that, volume isn't always the best strategy if you're trying to uh, uh, lead the world to follow Jesus. For me, personally, um, I, uh, you know, I vote uh, every year, twice a year, and I, I, I kind of say a prayer of repentance after, because I'm not sure what I'm getting my hands involved in. Um, I feel moved to do it, and I happen to know my neighbors that uh, do the, uh, the voting booth at the Church of the Advocate, where we live in North Philly, so it's nice to at least see them and kind of help me feel okay about this decision that I'm doing. But I don't think that um, the chief social agents, the people that, uh, or, or, or the ways that we imagine how we change the world, largely through the government, through the state, and through uh, the market, are the ways that God imagines us changing the world. And so I'm, I'm careful, personally, with how I utilize those met, uh, means, because I do think the means of transformation matter as much as the results of the transformation. And so even as I'm dabbling in things like voting or, or uh, you know, our development of that displacement team is, tr is lobbying or, uh, or uh, um, protesting city council to get more money in our uh, uh, housing trust fund to build affordable housing. That's really involved in the political apparatus. But I don't think the ultimate fulfillment for the Christian is in making a better uh, political apparatus. So 
that's that for me, some of my hesitation comes from that, that kind of complicated place that I live in, even as a Christian in Circle of Hope, uh, particularly. To add on to that, uh, not knowing as many of like, the Christian left voices, do you think they're as interested in accumulating political power? What do you think, Shane? Do you think the, the people on the, the political left are very interested in, in, in collecting political power? That's what Trevor's question is. Shane's a great follow on Twitter, by the way. I think it's, I think it's a mixed bag. And I, I, I mean, one of the things that seems like happened is folks that grew up in a conservative evangelical church have left, and they haven't necessarily left for something, like a yeah. progressive Christian movement. Like I was just with a gathering of largely pastors of color, and they said it's another, there's a, a dominant whiteness that when you leave the white evangelical church, you don't join, say, a, the black church or a Hispanic church in the neighborhood or something. So they were saying those are a lot of just the dropouts. So they haven't formed in any organized way similar to how the religious right has, you know. Um, yeah, I, I guess the other thing, I feel like there's there's some landmines on the left that are deal breakers and litmus tests, like uh, same-sex marriage or, you know, to be pro-choice. Whereas on the right, they navigate in a little bit more nuanced way. For instance, if you don't believe in uh, women pastors, you or, or whether you do, you can still be in the coalition. If you have different views on immigration, you can still hang together because you're anti-abortion and you're the same page on a few other things, but I think the left has, in some ways, is, is more intolerant of, uh, on a few issues. That's interesting. Thanks, Shane. No, I'm glad you shared it. Raise your hand if you had a question. Right. Yes, Rachel's one. I just want to make sure no one else. Yeah. With you, have, I, have we talked about this? Yeah. Oh, good. It's been, a, it's been a couple of years, so I, I'm looking really for an update. Um, I guess I'm curious um, how, as someone in a pastoral role, uh, this is messy to articulate because I have a language won't be able to speak to each other. Poor
to listen to the person who's suffering um, as best as I can and listen for what they need to hear. Um, I don't have a theory about God or the problem of evil, if you will, that is universally applicable. And I don't for a specific reason, because people need different images and views of God to sort through whatever trouble they found themselves in. And it's not like we're going to figure it out anyway. And we shouldn't be so arrogant as to assume that we know how everything works. And so there are people, I'll give you two stories. Um, I may not have time to do this, but I'll be as brief as I can. Um, I, I, did a, I did a funeral, did the eulogy at a funeral for... Uh, a 21-year-old who suffered with some mental illness and took his life. Um, he drowned himself in his parents' pool and his mom had to collect him. And she could not possibly keep her faith knowing that God could have controlled that situation and didn't. It wasn't even conceivable for her to do that. A God that is almighty and all a God, a, for her, God couldn't be both almighty and benevolent, good and powerful. Because if God could do something and he was powerful and God was powerful, then God wouldn't have let this happen. But if, he, but if God was good and powerful, he would have stopped it, right? That's the, there's a contradiction in her, and she couldn't get beyond that. And it wasn't my interest to undo that. And there are people who think that God has certain limitations that would um, maintain his, uh, God's character while um, limiting how God can act in the world, right? And so that's what she needed to hear. And I, 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 uh, I hold that thought within the, the, large, the broad spectrum of orthodoxy. And mine is broader than most. Um, and that's, that's how I see it. However, there was another uh, woman who's... Uh, husband was uh, charged with a crime, unfairly, she thought, and um, she thought it was real. Uh, he was being accused of something he didn't do, 
and he ended up serving in county jail for six months. Now, for her, she needed to know God was going to make this turn out to something good. That God had a bigger plan and that there was some restoration that was going to follow this great injustice that she experienced. And so for her, she needed a very high view of God's sovereignty or God's control of the, of the world. You know, she couldn't hold the other mother's view of how God was working because she needed God to be something else. And so that's how I approach it, Rachel. I, people have options in how they think about God, and people have been answering this question of uh, evil and sin and pain in the world in a variety of ways, right? Um, in seminary, we call it theodicy. And I, uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be part of a tradition that's had a lot of different thoughts about it. And so I draw from the cloud of witnesses before me in, in trying to supply, um, as best as I can, options for people about how to see God that doesn't break their faith. And so I'm not forcing them into a box that they can't fit in or forcing God into a box because I don't think that any of our ideas about God, our words about God, are sufficient anyway and they're kind of fundamentally flexible. Yeah, Becca. Um, this might be too theological, but do you have a particular hermeneutic that you tie all of Scripture in together, particularly reconciling Jesus and his message with some of the more difficult passages of the Old Testament? Do you have... Something that you do for yourself and your personal. Yeah, I, 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 I do. Um, the way that I read the Old Testament and reconcile it with the New Testament, I think you're talking about like the violence in the Old Testament and the peaceful way in the New Testament. How do I reconcile those things? Particularly uh -huh. passages where it's directed by God in order to, to accomplish his, like violence is directed by God. In those passages, like how do you reconcile them? The meta narrative, that's the narrative above all the narratives in the Bible, in my view. Um, and, my, and, my, and, and the pastors in Circle of Hope, I, I, I just want to, they, they may not like that I'm about to say this, but as far as I'm concerned, everything that I'm saying also represents them. So, what, Ben and Rachel and Julie agree with everything that I'm saying. And if they don't, uh, we'll figure it out. But right, that, that's how I speak. I speak with that kind of common voice. And, and, and so we see a meta-narrative, again, a narrative above all the other narratives in the scripture about God's um, ultimate uh, redemption and restoration of the world. And there are two stories in the Old and the New Testament that tell the story a little bit differently. And I'm okay with that little difference, and I don't suffer any cognitive uh, dissonance over the, the clear distinctions between the Old and the New Testament. And also between the writers of the Old Testament who have their own variety and their own spin and sometimes even their own dialogue or debate with one another. Um, depending on who is writing the part of the Torah or who's writing this portion of history too. You know, the Old Testament itself, if you look at uh, Kings and Samuel versus what the chronicler was writing about, are telling the same story about Israel and they disagree with one another. So for me, there is a lot of room for debate and discussion in the Bible. And sometimes God says things in the Old Testament that uh, seem to contradict something that God said in just a different uh, book, in a different chapter. And so that difference is largely how I can reconcile the differences. Um, I'm comfortable saying that the story of the Old Testament is about the restoration of Israel, the example of God, this freed people from slavery uh, to the whole world. And uh, slavery in Egypt, mind you. 
In the New Testament, there's a whole different narrative happening about the inclusion of God and including other people on that promise. That little difference between how the promise shifted helps me to reconcile the two. When I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm struggling with the retribution that's so apparent, especially in, let's say, from um, Deuteronomy until um, the end of, uh, until like Samuel or so, that whole history that's being told there, there's a lot of retribution. God is punishing evildoers, you know, brutally. When I'm struggling to, when I'm struggling with that imagery, I try to read the Bible like I'm um, in, 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 in the fullness of my own oppression and in the satisfaction that I might receive in knowing that God has my back. Even if it's just a hyperbole or an expression of justice that isn't exactly rooted in um, positivist truth or something like that, uh, the actual reality of how God is working out, I at least read the literature um, in this form to understand, no, God is, people are actually comforted by this, and if you're in captivity and you're reading your story again and you're telling again the story of Exodus to your kids, which is your heartbeat again as a, as a Hebrew person in captivity, is that God saved us once, God is going to save us again. And part of that salvation, part of that saving, is killing the Egyptians under the Red Sea. Right? This is a story of liberation for people that need to feel like God is liberatory and isn't just going to make everything okay and, and, and every evil doer, doer will go unpunished. Right? So there's, a, there's a, even a vantage point from which I read the Old Testament that allows me to reconcile it reconcile it with what I think is the clear, nonviolent, uh, pacifist even way of Jesus. So that's, uh, that was, I, said, I said a variety of things there, but that's, I, um, I don't know. So there probably was like four hermeneutics in there about how I work it out. But that's, that's at least my approach. Okay, to jump. Sorry, you brought up a lot. So uh, it just made me curious what you oh classify as basic electric. <laughs> So here's what I do. Thank you. This will be the final question. All right. So I can rewire like a fuse box. I'm comfortable unplugging the house from the grid. Because I'm, it's because I'm dumb. People ask me to do They call me up and say, you're the dumbest person I know. Why don't you? I know you told me. I should call you. You should be there with a wooden stick. You wouldn't be to save me? Yeah, do the stick. If I, if I, can't, if I touch the main, just hit my, with a stick. A wooden stick because it doesn't conduct electricity. See, we've worked this all out. So I can do that. I can, I can daisy chain a room, if I, uh, quite possibly, uh, and uh, turn, make, make electrical outlets, um, on and off switches. We tore down a wall in my house, and I connected it to a light switch several years later. So we had a dangling wire happening for, like, essentially all of Elaine's uh, first memories. And then eventually, like, right in there. Elaine came three weeks early or something like that, and I, in that three, I was, I'm going to fix that in, in before she comes, and then she came early, and then it took three years. But we did that, too. Donovan has an air conditioner in his house that I kind of helped put an outlet in for, too. <laughs> so those are some of the... Thank you. An A on what? What's that? It's on the chip. Oh, it's in the chip. But y'all know this already? Okay, we, this, is, this has to be over. Uh, I was just going to see what you do on Saturdays when I'm working on my electric for the next few weeks. Because, you know, I'll be here. Yeah, we, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, that sounds fun.
All right, thanks a lot. I hope this was helpful. I hope you got to know me a little bit better. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.